All right, so we're starting a, a series. It's a very short series. It's really going to just carry us through for the next three weeks today and <clears throat> next couple weeks after that, getting us into the summer. So I, it's hard to believe summer's almost almost here. Um, but we, we're right at the tail end of this spring. So we're going to do a quick series on the vision of Springbrook Church. Um, we don't spend a ton of time talking about the, the vision, the values, like we, we mostly want to just spend our time talking about the Bible, right? So that's obviously why we spend the bulk of our time in books of the Bible, preaching through God's word that way, and then applying it as we need to, um, to our lives and as it works within the scripture. But uh, every, every once in a while, ideally once a year, I try to get us on the same page about why our church exists, what we're here to do, what we want to see God accomplish. And the reason for that is because if we don't continue staying focused on the essentials of what our church exists to, to do, uh, we're going to drift away from it inevitably. It just always happens. So it's going to happen. And so every year, ideally, if it works out, we will do a series on this. And uh, this is the kickoff of that for this year. So here's what we're going to do. We have a very simple vision, mission, whatever you want to call it here at Springbrook Church. It is love Jesus, love people, help people love Jesus. You've probably heard me say that more than once if you've been here a while. If you're brand new, this is a great time to come because now you can kind of figure out if this is a a church that you want to join arms with and and, uh, be a part of. But we're just going to spend three weeks talking about each of these, these things, loving Jesus, what does that mean? Loving people, what does that mean? And then helping people to love Jesus and what that means. So that's where we're going. Very simple. We don't, we, we are a intentionally simple church. And I know that that may not be where you guys are coming from. Some of you may not be coming from a simple church philosophy of ministry, but that's who we are. We're convictionally simple. We want to be as bare bones, basic Christian life as possible without all the fanfare and fluff. And that, that's intentional because we believe it's, it's important for us to get down to the essentials of the Christian faith and to help more people come into that Christian faith through our relationships with them. So we'll get into all of that more and more as we talk through these three sermons. But Today, we're going to focus on simply, what does it mean to love Jesus? What does it mean to love Jesus? That's all we're talking about today. So um, here's, here's the thing. Saying love Jesus sounds like a command. And it is a command in a sense. God tells us in his word that the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself Now, the danger in this is that if we say love God or love Jesus or however you articulate that, um, it can very quickly turn into what we have to do in order to love Jesus. It becomes, it can be driven by the law. It can be driven by commands and and responsibilities. And it can very quickly turn into, okay, to love Jesus, I have to fill in the blank situation. And that's, that's what we want to push against here. We are not talking about loving Jesus in, in the sense of what we have to do to keep him from being angry at us. I think most of the time that's how we think of it. 
It's like, okay, I don't want God to be mad at me, so I've, I've got to jump through the hoops. And we need to be very careful here because it's easy for us to turn around and say, okay, love Jesus, which means here's what I have to do. That's not the way it works. The Bible tells us that's not the way it works. In 1 John, we're, we're going to look at this. This will be up on the screen too. You don't have to turn here, but 1 John chapter 4, 9 and 10. Um, we're going to look at John 15, which is written by the same author, ultimately under the inspiration of God's Spirit. Um, but there's some clarity here that we have to get to before we get into um, the main text. So 1 John 4, 9 says this, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. The love of God was made known. It was on display among us. And here's how that was on display, that God sent his only son, that's Jesus, into the world so that we might live through him. Okay, second sentence here. In this is love. What is the definition of loving God? Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation is a big loaded theological term that means to take away wrath from one party uh, and God placed his wrath on Jesus on the cross to take God's wrath from us. So when we say that God is angry at us, that is actually a theologically inaccurate thing to believe if we're in Christ there's no anger in God left for us because he is the propitiation for our sins. Every sin you've committed, even in this, this day, this hour, every thought, every motive, all of it was taken off of you and placed onto Jesus. So love for Jesus is not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to display that love as a propitiation for our sins. So that's crucial to understand as we set up this, this series. As we want to be a gospel-centered church. And so it's important to know that the gospel is not defined as we love Jesus. That's not how it's defined. The gospel is defined as God loved us and sent his son into the world to die and rise for us. And if we get that twisted around, we're, we're missing something massive here. We love God because God loved us in Jesus Christ. That's how it works. We can't say God loves us because. We can't say God loved us because I go to church or because I read my Bible or because I pray or because I give money to charities or to the church or or any other number of things that we define as being good and right. And that is, those things are good and right, but it's the motivation of what we do those things for that matters. If we're doing those things as an overflow of God's love for us, then we're on steady ground. And if we're doing those things as a, as a way to get God to love us, we're missing the whole point. So we need to articulate this rightly. All right, so what does it mean? Let's just, we're going to turn to John 15, if you've got your Bible there. Um, what does it mean for God to love us so that we love him? 
Well, it means just that, that we live out of response to who he is and what he's done for us. Or as 1 John describes it, we live through him. Right? He sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him, through his son, through Jesus. That is, that's where all this works. We are moving towards Jesus in love because he loved us. And so as we get to John 15, I think it's helpful to know where this, this passage falls uh, in the, the narrative or the story of, of John's gospel about Christ it, it falls in what is called the upper room discourse. So the upper room discourse is where Jesus is teaching his disciples um, just prior to his crucifixion, his arrest, his betrayal, all those things that happened leading up to the cross. He is in the upper room. They have had a meal together. He has, chapter 13, washed their feet, displayed for them his, his love, And now he begins to teach them all about this life he is going to give them as he dies and rises for them. And so he walks us through these commandments that he's giving to us in light of his life and death and resurrection. He gives us the promise of the Holy Spirit in chapter 14, who will be the empowerment in our lives of all these things. But then John 15, he really starts to connect all of this Uh, to where we need to go. So um, if you look in verse 1, Jesus is going to start by using an analogy, uh, an illustration. Uh, And here's what it is. Look at it. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Jesus uses this analogy of vines and branches. And this analogy is going to run through this whole chapter. Um, And he's setting us up to understand the kind of dynamic, the kind of relationship that we have to our Savior and how this is meant to work. He is showing us, in, in effect, what it means to truly be in him to be united to him, to be connected with him in a life-giving way. And, and it's, so he's not speaking literally here as a vine branch picture. He's using this as an analogy. And the, the analogy is simply to understand this way. If, if a branch is not connected to the life-giving source of the vine, it will not bear fruit. If, if you're not connected to Jesus, you will not have the spiritual fruit in your life to love him and love others and help others love him like we should. We have to be connected to Jesus for that. So as we walk through this, we're actually going to see um, more or less and the, the things that are coming out of our lives, that the fruit that Christ produces in our lives as we're connected to him, um, as we're united to him by faith. And he's going to give us five um, things, five um, dimensions of life, five fruits of what it means to be connected to Jesus. And the first we've already read, it's actually in verse three. He says this, already you are clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Now, this 
it needs to be set up and understood in the broader context, which Jesus has just literally physically washed his disciples' feet, in back, which is recorded back in chapter 13. But this is all happening at the same time. It's all, he's teaching them now, fleshing out what, what he's been trying to get them to understand as his followers. And so in one sense, he has physically washed them, washed the dirt off their feet, and displayed that as an act of humility and love and grace. But it, but it points to a bigger thing. The washing of their feet points not just to the fact that he loves them and cares for them, but that he will actually, as he goes to the cross, remove the, the true dirt from their lives and their souls. That, that he will wash them thoroughly and completely. That he will cleanse them from all their sin. Now that has not yet happened in the timeline because Jesus has not yet gone to the cross, but he's preparing them for this. He's telling them about all the things that are going to happen after the, uh, the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's why he's talking to them about the Holy Spirit. He's talking to them about the, the future uh, outreach that they're going to have. He's, he's preparing them for what will be. And, and he's telling them again that you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. What does that mean? What it means, and I think what he's foreshadowing here and what he's referring to is that his followers, because Jesus declares them to be clean or purified, they have his full finished work applied to their lives. They don't have to do anything to be cleansed except to abide in Jesus, to be connected to Jesus by as a branches to the vine. That's all it is. You are clean means that his finished work applies to you so that there's nothing left to be done for you to be right with him. And this is ultimately true as Jesus dies and rises again. So, but what kind of fruit does this reality, this teaching, this thing he's telling them has happened? You are clean. Already you are clean. What does that produce in us? To know that we're clean because of Christ. To know that we're forgiven because of Christ. What does that do for us? It means that we can rest in him. Abiding in Christ, loving Christ, functionally means that we get to rest in Christ. That, that we don't have to keep running on a treadmill of our own attempts at good works to get Jesus to love us more. When Jesus says, already you are clean, what that means is that there is nothing more you can do for him to see you fully as he wants you to be. There's nothing else you can add there's nothing else you can accomplish. He's done all of it for you. And so this should set our hearts at rest. It should put us in a place of, of absolute thankfulness to go, I can just breathe. I can just be. I, I can just be with Jesus. He's loved me. He's done all the work. It's not me. It's because I am clean because of the word he has spoken to us. He did the work. He's accomplished this. He's the one who went to the cross and died for my sins. I get to just now rest in this. We're not going to turn here, but Hebrews chapter 4 comes to mind. And if you have time to read this on your own at some point, it's worth, 
worthwhile, but he, the author of Hebrews really drills down in chapter 4 on this issue of rest in Christ, that, that the, the work is finished. And so what do we get to do? We get to just be, and that's a beautiful thing. We get to rest in Christ. That's what functionally the fruit of loving Jesus produces as we're connected to him as a branch to the vine. But let's keep reading. We got four more to look at here. So verse four and five, here's what he says. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So Jesus says this phrase, and he's going to say this uh, a number of times. He's going to use this word abide in me. Abide in me. What does that mean? Well, the word abide really means to remain. It means to stay put. It's, it's, uh, it's about finding all of our hopes, desires, and needs fulfilled in Christ. It's not about what we do to accomplish these things. It's just about being with Jesus. That's what he's saying. Abide in me, verse 4, and I in you. That's an amazing thing. The branch, he says, he's using the analogy again. Remember, the branch cannot bear fruit by itself. If you cut a, a branch off of a vine, that's, that branch should grow grapes, right? If it's connected to a healthy vine, it's going to produce grapes. You cut that branch off and you just put it on the ground, it's not going to produce anything. It needs the vine to give it its life and its fruit. So Jesus uses that analogy You cannot bear fruit unless you abide in me. Unless we're connected meaningfully to Jesus, we can't can't see fruit in our lives. And then he drills even deeper. He says, I'm the vine, you are the branches, in case we're confused about this. He's the one that gives us the life. He's the one who gives us the fruit, right? That's how it works. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. If, If you want to bear fruit of the Christian life in you, in your in your family, in your church, in whatever context you find yourself, if you want to bear fruit for Jesus, you've got to be connected to him. And then he says this, this is amazing, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Now, of course, he's not saying in a very literal way that you can literally do nothing um, without Jesus. Now, in one sense, though, that's true, right? Because if Jesus just decided to stop holding the world together, well, we're out of luck, okay, right? Like, there's a sense in which that's true. Like, even the fact that you have breath in your lungs is because Jesus gives you breath in your lungs. The Bible tells us he created all things and he sustains all things. Okay, but that's not really the point of what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying you can, apart from me, you can do nothing in the context of producing spiritual fruit, that's what he's saying in this context. He's talking about that issue. And so when he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, 
He's not saying that we can't sin without him. We can sin without him, right? We can split churches without him. We can, we can uh, destroy our lives without him. We can ruin our families without him. We can do lots of things without Jesus, but we can't have Jesus without Jesus. We can't have him. We can't be with him. We can't produce fruit that resembles him. So what is he getting at? What is the fruit then to use that analogy, if we find rest in him and rest is a fruit of, of God's grace in our lives, what's another one? Here's this one. It's dependence. As, as believers in Jesus, we find our total and complete dependence in Jesus. If we want to have lives that reflect him, that love him, that pursue him, we have to be connected to him. We have to remain in him. We have to stay there, right? And that's what he's getting at. He's saying we have to be completely dependent on him. And that issue in and of itself is, is hard for us because we are just wired. We're hardwired because of our sinful natures to be independent of God. Sin entered into the world because Adam and Eve decided to take it upon themselves to be independent of God. Functionally, the serpent's temptation to them was, you don't need God, so just do your thing. And they believed it, and they, they plunged us all into that. And we've all inherited now the same sin nature that, that comes from them that leads us to a spirit of independence from God. I'm not saying all independence is wrong, right? But independence from God is absolutely wrong. Because if, if we're not dependent on Jesus, we are not going to produce any fruit that is actually lovely and loving and and joyful and all all the rest. We need Jesus to produce in us what what we need. So there's rest in Christ. There's dependence on Christ. These are things that flow out of us as he loves us. Let's keep going. Look at verse six through eight. He says, if anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So here's, I think, what he, and he says a lot here, a lot of things that we, we could unpack for a long time, but here's fun, fundamentally what he's getting at. I think verse, uh, verse 8 is the key to what he's getting at in this. He's simply saying if we're not connected to him, if we're not connected to Jesus by faith, um, then there's, there's nothing for us except to be removed from God altogether. But if we're connected to him, we're not going to be removed from him, right? Like, that's kind of the point. Like, if we're abiding in Jesus, the, our, our life will be with him forever. We won't be removed. And if we're connected to him, then we can ask whatever we need, and, and he will do that for us. But here's verse 8. This is the crucial part, I think, of this section, is that by, by this... My Father is glorified. Okay, so by what? What is God glorified in? That you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. 
there's a sense in which a fruit of, of abiding in Jesus, of being loved by Jesus, is that we actually listen to Jesus and we do what he says. And we're not going to do that perfectly as sinners, of course. But as we grow in Christ, as we continue to remain in Christ, we, we should see obedience to Jesus begin to grow in our lives. Again, we've got to be careful. There's a, I always use this analogy and I get teased for it because it's like so, you know, so Amish. But you, you can't put the cart in front of the horse, okay, right? Like, I, I'm old school. I, I'm just a cart and horse kind of guy, I guess. But uh, I just like that picture. It's like you need the horse to drive the cart. It can't work the other way. And if a, car, if a horse is trying to push a cart, it's going to be a pretty ineffective way of moving that. And so we can very easily turn the obedience issue around and get it all twisted up and not be in the proper order. Here's what we've already established. Jesus has finished the work for us. He's already established that in verse 3. Jesus has completed the work for us, and so his grace has poured out in us. And so then what happens from there is that good works flow out of us. We, our works, our good works, our, our good deeds do not make us right with God in themselves because I think the, the biblical issue there is that there are no true good works in us to begin with, right? We don't have good works to even bring to God uh, in, without him. That's kind of the point Jesus is making here. But let's say we had some good things to bring to bear and those things are not going to make us right with God. In themselves, But when we become right with God, when he does the work of grace in our lives, then we start to see this, these good works flow out of us. It's always cart behind the horse, not the other way around. And that's the point of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10 in particular. He spends all this time talking about, hey, we're sinners, we, we can't save ourselves, but God, being rich in mercy, made us alive together with Christ. He brought us into this life with Jesus. And, and then we, we get this amazing information and truth about uh, that, our, that our good works don't save us. It's all God's grace that saves us. But then verse 10, he says, but God prepared good works for you. God prepared good works for you to do. We just live out in obedience to Jesus what he's already given to us. It's, it's kind of the, the picture analogy I, I've used of, of an empty glass. Like all of us start out with Jesus. If we don't believe in him, we've just got an empty glass. That's all we are. And as he pours his grace into that glass, into our lives, that glass fills up. And eventually as he continues to pour his grace into our lives, which the Bible says his grace is the immeasurable riches of grace. He just keeps pouring that into our lives. Eventually that glass begins to overflow. And it's the overflow of that glass that is really the, the good works that we display. As God pours grace in us, it fills us, not just to the brim, but it overflows. And so when Jesus says here that, 
um, that the Father is glorified as we bear much fruit and so prove to be our, his disciples. He's not saying that we're doing the good works or bearing the fruit to be his disciples. He's saying that that's how we, we show that we are his disciples. We listen to Jesus. We obey Jesus, not out of rote uh, requirements of the law, but out of an overflow of joy and grace that he's given to us. Okay, let's keep going. Verse 9 and 10, we just got to keep rolling through. We're going to cap it off at 11 here today, but look at 9 and 10. He says, as the Father, this is amazing. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. That could be its own sermon right there. Um, Think about what Jesus just said there. As the Father, God the Father, so we have a triune God, right? The Bible teaches us we have one God in three persons, and each person is fully God, but each person is not the same as all the other persons. I know that's complicated, but that's, that's what the Bible teaches. And we have God the Father who sent God the Son to be the propitiation for our sin. God the Son and God the Father send God the Spirit to pour out into our lives. This is how this is working. But think about what Jesus is saying. As the Father has loved me. How has the Father loved Jesus? Like, we can't even define that. That is incredible to even ponder. But what we know is that there is fullness of love between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There is no lack of love. They're not up there bickering with each other. They're not up there doubting whether the others love them. There is fullness of love. Even on our best days as human beings, with the people we love the most, we're, not, we're never going to have a fullness of this kind of love while we're here on earth. Like This is incredible. So Jesus says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. In the same way that God the Father loves God the Son, Jesus loves you. Wow. He says then, abide in my love. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in in his love. Okay, now this, this verse sounds conditional as in like, hey, the, the love of the, of the son is only going to be given to you if you do the, the rules. But that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying because he says that if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. But then this is the way that we understand this. Just as I, Jesus, have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus is not saying, and this would be heretical for us to say, if this is how we understand it, Jesus is not saying that the Father's love for Jesus as they existed in this Trinitarian Godhead, right? There is no way that he is saying that the Father's love for him was conditional upon him doing what he was supposed to do. What he is saying is what he's saying to us, that because of the Father's love for Jesus and Jesus' love for the Father, he gladly and joyfully has done all that the Father has asked him to do. And so, so will we. 
if we are in Jesus's love. We, again, in a progressive and growing way, because we're not Jesus, we're not sinless, we're not perfect, he is, we're not. We're going to stumble our way through this, but we will progressively grow, gradually grow in our obedience and love for Jesus as an overflow of his love for us. So he tells us that as he has been loved, so he loves us and we need to abide in his love. And the way in which that abiding in his love manifests is through our listening to him and doing what he calls us to do. But the primary fruit that he's drawing out in this passage is that love is full and complete for those who are in Christ. So if you trust in Jesus, the love of Jesus is totally yours, completely free. This is amazing. He actually doesn't say here that we need to love him. He says we need to abide in his love. And I think that that's, that's different. He's saying we rest, we remain in his love for us. And so what we're doing is we're loving Jesus by living out of the reality that he loves us. It means that functionally we find our identity in his love for us, not in our love for him. So we don't find our identity in what we do or who we are or how we perform or what roles we play. We don't find our ultimate identity in our careers or our relationships or our hobbies or anything else. We find our identity in Jesus because as the Father has loved him, so has he loved us. That's good news for our hearts. We find our identity in the fact that we are Jesus' people. The last thing here, verse 11. These things, he says, I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The last fruit that he draws out of abiding in him, of being loved by him, is joy. Joy is a fruit of being in Christ. We know that a fruit of the Spirit, right? It's listed, it's the second one in the list of the fruit of the Spirit. There's love, there's joy. Joy is, listen, it's not plastering some phony smile on your face. Here's what joy is. Joy is finding our contentment and fulfillment in Jesus no matter what. We actually see this uh, in Philippians chapter 4. I don't think I've got the words on the screen for you, but let me, I'll turn there and just read some of this. Um, so all of Philippians is about joy. It's kind of the, the level of, uh, oh, the, the surface of what Paul's talking about. And he brings it out uh, it, all throughout this letter. But at the, as he gets to the end, uh, towards the end, in verse uh, 4 through Uh, excuse me, 10 through 13 of chapter 4, here's what he says. He says, I rejoiced. So rejoicing is the verb attached to, to joy, right? It's the expression of joy. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length 
you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to, be, how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty, having more than he needs, and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So we need to understand, I think it's helpful to understand at least, that Paul is writing this from prison. He's probably not getting three square meals a day at this moment as he's writing this. But what he says is this, I can rejoice greatly in the Lord because I have learned to be content. He, he has learned, it is a process of learning. I don't think it just happens immediately by nature. I think this is something that God does for us over time. He has learned that in whatever situation he's in, he can be content. So connecting this back to to Jesus in John 15, basically Jesus is saying that my joy is in you and it's in you so that your joy may be full. And what he's trying to get, get us to understand is that to live in joy, the joy that he has, the joy that he gives to us, is this joy of contentment in him. Doesn't matter what our circumstances are. Think about where Jesus is when he's saying these words. He is in the upper room, just hours away from one of his closest friends, betraying him to the authorities, those authorities arresting him and trying him and crucifying him. And he, that is the, in the shadow of all of this. And yet he can say that he has fullness of joy and that that joy is in us and he's giving it to us. The, Jesus found joy in every circumstance of his life, including the, the most difficult ones. The book of Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross. It's an amazing thing. And that joy can be in us as we rest in Jesus. So here's where we need to land today. And I, I will land. Maybe I'll crash land, but we'll land here, okay? We're, we'll be done. We talk about loving Jesus But what we really need to talk about is that he loves us. And because he loves us, we can love him. The gospel is good news that Jesus loves you, that he loves you and so we can love him. And I think as a church, we just need to keep pressing into that. We need to keep pressing in to what he has done for us, what he has accomplished for us, what he, what he did to secure us in him, far more than focusing or pressing in on all the ways in which we do the things. I'm not saying that we don't do anything. We have to do things because God has compelled us to do those things by his love for us. But we don't have to do those things because we have to somehow keep earning his favor. His favor fully rests on you if you're in Jesus. And so we need, we need to live out of the overflow of his love for us. And as we do that, we will begin to love people. 
If we really rest in the love Jesus has for us, the love that we display towards people will, will continue to grow. And as we continue to love people, our hearts will continue to be drawn towards helping those people love Jesus. And so this is the progression of of the Christian life. And that's why we're just simply trying to express that here. So next week we'll get into what does it mean to love people? And after that, what does it mean to help them love Jesus? But we have to see this through the lens of, no, actually Jesus loves me. And that's why I can and should love people. And, and when we get this straight, when we get this right, when we're doing things in the right order, we will find that it actually flows a lot easier for us. And so as a church, we want to keep pressing into this. We want to keep loving people and helping them love Jesus. But, but we will never do that in the way we should if we're not being compelled by the love Jesus has for us. So next week, we'll stay in John 15 through this whole series, I think. We'll pick up in verse 12 through uh, 17 next week. So if you want to read ahead or prepare yourself for that, we, we'll get there. But but uh, I just want to encourage you, stay rooted in the rest that you have in Jesus. Remain in him. Abide in him. Don't find any of your hopes outside of him. He loves you more than you can even fathom. But he loves you regardless. So let's, let's pray and we'll transition in, into a time of worship. Father in heaven, we thank you that as you loved your son, Jesus, that, that your son loves us. And because your son loves us, you love us, and your spirit empowers us and cares for us. And we, we just ask you, Father in heaven, that you would help us to keep close to Jesus. We pray that you would draw us away from our um, our desire or our inclination to be all about what we do in the Christian life and to grow instead into the ways in which the Christian life really is about all that you have done to love us, help us, and save us. And we pray that as we sing now, as we reflect on these things, as we go to the table and remember your, your sacrifice and death, that we, would, that we would be drawn in deeper. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.